A wonderful verse to open our service for tonight. Thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. We are the people of God and it's a joy in this pagan dark age to shine as lights in a dark place. May this be a time of recharging your batteries Refreshing and renewing your heart and your mind, your spirit in the Lord. Trust that you shall find great joy and blessing and strength from the word of God tonight. It always, it always stirs our hearts and it always builds us up in our spiritual lives. It's a joy to welcome you and thank you for joining us. It's wonderful to be together in the middle of the week. A time to study God's word, to pray and just to rejoice in the good things of the Lord. What do you have tonight now? You, you're, what, what, what is the subject tonight on? Well, it's basically servant leadership is what we're going servant to be looking at Servant leadership, wow. So does this have to do with dirty feet? Oh, it has something to do with smelly feet, sure enough. Smelly, dirty feet? And, yeah. and, and, and do we get involved in cleaning smelly, dirty feet in ministry? Well, if you want me to, I'll wash your feet, Pastor. I don't know. <laughs> oh, my. Let's read, the, let's read the scripture text for tonight. Out of John's Gospel and chapter number 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So we came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. <laughs> Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent me. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Amen. Well, that will be an interesting study tonight. I hope that you're ready and you've got your Bible ready. And we'll be looking at Mark as well as John tonight, so keep your finger there in the, those two books, those two Gospels, 
and a few other passages tonight. Again, we're continuing our study of the Thriving Church tonight. The Thriving Church by Dean Taylor. He's one of the professors at Faith Baptist Bible College in Ankeny, Iowa. Good school, I recommend it. A good friend I've known for many, many years. And so tonight we're looking at the pattern of grace and truth. That's chapters 9 and 10 of the book. We've been at it for some time now. In those chapters, uh, Dave, uh, uh, we're given the examples of of how Jesus used grace and truth in his ministry to a number of people. And overall, remember now, this study of the thriving church is all about growth and about our church growing and about us growing as individual believers. And uh, we've been asking several questions since the beginning of our study. We haven't looked at it for several weeks. I just want to remind you that those four questions, what is growth? And it's basically uh, becoming more like Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 17 says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4 it tells us that we are to attain to that measure, to that pattern, the likeness of Jesus Christ, the pattern of grace and truth. And so growth is becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And what causes growth? Well, basically what we're doing, studying about Jesus, trying to see what he is like, and then choosing to make decisions that are like the ones Jesus made, living like him, following in his steps. And we want to focus on that tonight. The third question that we ask throughout the study is, am I helping or hindering my church's growth? Well, I don't know. I haven't seen you for a while. I would recommend that you ask your spouse or ask one of your children, am I helping my church grow or am I not? Ask somebody who knows you well and uh, they'll tell you the truth and uh, just be ready to accept whatever it is they say. I hope that you are growing in the Lord and I hope that you're ready to help the church when it gets back on its feet and is really going at it full bore. Though we're already busy, we're not as busy as we will be and we're going to need all the help we can. How can I help my church uh, help make my church a growing body. Again, it's be, by becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ, by being gracious to lost souls, witnessing, standing up for him, telling others of who he is and what he's done for them, being kind to your brothers and sisters in Christ, living out your Christian faith as Jesus would have you, and uh, speaking words that are based on biblical truth, not on the news, not on what you read from other newspaper. But focus on the Word of God and then live out what you're learning as you read. And I hope that you're in God's Word on a daily and a regular basis, reading it and uh, becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, these two chapters have focused on the idea of grace and truth. And Jesus demonstrated that in nine different ways as talked about across the two chapters here in Dean's book. Uh, ultimately, Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says that there is salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus preached that same message, though Acts chapter 4 verse 12 hadn't been written yet, that there's no other way to get to heaven except through him. And uh, he preached it, and he preached it graciously, but he told the truth wherever he went. Colossians chapter 4 verse 6 says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned as though seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. So we should constantly be graciously telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Not long ago I was at a meeting uh, on, a, on a, a county court step, uh, on the steps of a county courthouse. And, uh, and there was a man there with a, with a megaphone. He was yelling at people across the street with a megaphone trying to preach the gospel of Christ. 
and obviously nobody was really listening to him. He felt like he was doing something, and I could have to say he really wasn't being very gracious about the way he did it. That's not the way to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to speak with grace by building relationships, talking with people, showing people the love of Christ, and also telling them the truth. The message of heaven and hell, the message of the blood of Jesus, the message of the cross, it may offend, but let's be sure that we don't offend in our way of telling them. That's how Jesus did it. He never changed his message, but he approached every person where they were in the need of the moment, and he spoke to them very clearly of their need for salvation. He spoke to a religious and moral man in John chapter 3. We're reviewing here a little bit. You remember Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He set up an appointment, and he showed up. And he recognized that though he was moral, though he was a teacher of the law, though he had done a lot of religious things, he knew in his heart that things were not right between him and God. And Jesus graciously met with this man, lovingly told him of his need to be born again and his need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. Nicodemus didn't accept Jesus that night as Savior, at least not that we are aware of, but we do know that there was fruit in his life to prove to us that he did eventually, we believe, come to the Lord of the Lord. And we're thankful for that. Then he went in John chapter 4, Jesus purposely then, instead of an appointment being made by the other person, Jesus purposely went to a, a distant city uh, like a missionary. He went to Samaria. And he sat by a well, and when a woman came by, he knew of the thirst that was in her soul, a thirst that was not being met by her lifestyle, by the other things that she had in her life. She was a, a, a wicked woman. She was living in sin. She'd been an immoral person and was living in immorality at the moment. And Jesus said, you have a need. And she said, I can give you living water, and you will never thirst again. She asked for it. I believe she received it because then she went and told every, everyone in her city and many people in her city of Sychar there about the Lord Jesus and what he had told them. Uh, and, uh, and they too also came to know the Lord Jesus Christ because of her transformed testimony. Then Jesus in John chapter 6 meets with a crowd of hungry people. Thousands of people had been following the Lord Jesus, watching his miracles, seeing things that he had done, listening to his teaching. And uh, they were hungry. And Jesus, in grace, abundantly provided enough food to feed thousands of people from a little boy's lunch. You know the story. Uh, it's a true historical account. Make sure you know that when we say the word story, we're talking about real events. And uh, Jesus was able to feed their hunger of their, of their body, their physical hunger. But then he told them of a need that they had that they maybe not did not know. And that was that they had a a spiritual hunger that only the bread of life, and Jesus was the bread of life, the bread of life could provide for them. And many people, I believe, came to know the Lord, though we don't have much record of it. We know that they continued following after him, so they must have had some needs met that day for sure. And then in John chapter 8, we've skipped over another couple chapters and get to John chapter 8, and there uh, Jesus is confronted by a mob of of. Uh, angry Pharisees and scribes, and they're bringing in this embarrassed woman who's been caught in the sin of adultery. And they cast her down at Jesus' feet and try to trap him and by putting him in a position where he's caught between uh, the requirements of the Old Testament law and the, and the requirements of the Roman law under which the Jews were living at the time. The Old Testament law said, 
stone her to death, kill her for her sin. Also the man that she was involved with, though the Pharisees didn't bring him. But the Roman law said you can't do that. You, you don't have that authority. That is a, an authority that is reserved for the nation of Rome. So Jesus, without condoning the woman's sin, stood up and, and, and challenged them that the first one without sin cast the stone. And one by one, we know the men left from the eldest down to the youngest. And then the woman was left, and Jesus then told her, go and sin no more. Now, we have no idea of anyone actually accepting Jesus Christ as Savior that day, but he treated both groups, both the religious hypocrites with, with dignity, and he treated them with uh, respect and grace, but he also treated the woman who was caught in sin with grace and, in, and challenged people to walk away and do what was right. So Jesus always told the truth. Jesus always treated people with grace and respect. And we can home, only hope and pray that some of those, those Pharisees and, some of the, and that woman also accepted Christ as Savior. Now then we go in last week is where we were uh, discussing a grieving family. And little did I know when we talked about it last week that one of our dear pastor friends was going to be losing his wife uh, within the next day or so. And I've learned even today of another friend who's lost his father this week to the COVID. And what an opportunity we have now to minister to these people and to, to show the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, to speak the truth of God's word to their heart, to bring comfort to them. You may know someone else who is suffering during this time, maybe not from COVID, but from loneliness or from some other need. But there are people around us who are living in grief, and we want to be able to minister to them as Jesus did. In John chapter 11, Jesus met with Mary and Martha, who had just lost their brother. I don't know what the illness was, but Jesus delayed his, his going so that he could give us this illustration of how to treat this situation uh, with grace and truth, how to comfort people in their time of trial and trouble. He comforted them with promises from the scriptures. He told them about that, that Lazarus was going to rise again. And that they would see him again. And those are promises that are in the scriptures, both in the Old and the New Testament. And uh, he was very kind. But he also reminded these ladies that there was only one way that they were going to be able to enjoy the real resurrection. The resurrection which included the place in heaven. Jesus said in John chapter 11 verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. What a wonderful promise for those who know Christ. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. It's like they've gone to another place. And then he asked the question, do you believe this? Of course, we asked you that question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe that Jesus is the one who can give resurrection and life? You have to trust him if you want to enjoy the benefits of that promise. He provided beyond that, though, in this particular situation, the greatest comfort anyone could ever have. Can you imagine going to a funeral and someone raising that person out of the, out of the casket and, and returning them back to life and to the family and the, the jobs and the ministries and the relationships they had before their body died? Lord, uh, that would have been an exciting thing to see. But, uh, uh, and it might probably frightening as well. I can't imagine it was when Lazarus came out of that grave. But everybody knew that Jesus had done something spectacular. And that was the main purpose of, of that event that took place there in John chapter 11, to prove that Jesus was the Christ, what, that he is God in the flesh, that he is the one who can provide eternal life. 
Now, we haven't been called to that kind of a ministry. Uh, we have been called to minister to people, though, during their time of grief. In, uh, Dean Taylor says in his book, The extremity of grief is an opportunity for the church to be the church, to do what the body of Christ does. Again, I mentioned to you about uh, our pastor friend who lost his dear wife this week, this last week. And I was grateful to be able to partake of a Zoom meeting where those people were gathering for an hour uh, on the evening uh, after we learned of her death and to be able to pray for that hour with that pastor. And several other pastors joined in with us that night. And I know others have been ministering to him as well. Our church is trying to help him financially as well with some of those needs. But it was wonderful to see his church be the church and to rally behind their pastor in his time of, of need and grief. You see, when a fellow Christian dies, even the Christian family members have to go through some phases of grief. They go through the realization that their loved one is dead, and that's a jarring truth. It's hard to first realize, oh, they're not physically there right now. And then there's the realization that this person is now gone to heaven. And we know that in theory, but until we actually go through the experience of losing a loved one and, and coming to grips with the fact that they're actually in heaven, we, we have a hard time comprehending that truth that is so uh, pointedly placed as to, given to us in the scriptures. And then we have this hope that they're going to see them again. I'm so thankful that my pastor friend knows that his wife has gone to heaven and that he's going to see her again. We have wonderful hope with that. I'm so thankful for so many of my friends, and I guess the older I get, the more I, I so like I have as many friends up there as I do down here, and there's wonderful hope in that. But there is this process of grief that we need to help people through. Dean Taylor says in his book, every family's experience with the death of a loved one is difficult, whether it be the end of a long terminal illness or old age, or a quick moving illness, or a sudden tragedy like an automobile accident, or a suicide. Those are difficult times. And ways for the church to, uh, to, to move and to, to uh, minister is, are by including your presence, truth-based words of comfort, and helpful acts. Visiting the family at the funeral home. Attending the memorial service. Sending a comforting card with a personal note and providing food for the family and their guests are not just traditions, they are tangible ways of showing grace and speaking truth to hurting people. And I hope that you will take that type of ministry on when that, type of, when that kind of a need uh, arises when you, with people that you know. And now I know right now we're not able to go to hospitals. I know right now many people are not able to go to funerals. But we can send cards, and we can send flowers, and we can... Uh, express our appreciation and our concern and our love for those who are hurting. There's a short practical list. We've shortened down even what I gave you last week just, just to solidify this in your minds. Uh, practical advice. Let those who are the closest to the grieving family be the first to speak to their needs. Let them do the majority of the work. <coughs> <coughs> Pardon me, just got a little tickle. It's not the COVID. Anyway, they should be the ones who spend the most of time, most of the time with them as they grieve. Don't intrude by pushing yourself into a situation where you don't know them too well. Then sometimes you just need to stop and let them talk about their loved one. 
let them talk about what happened and how they how they passed the illness and those those difficulties but also let them tell stories about good memories regarding their loved one I love to see good pictures of, of uh, and, and to bring the memories up of, of what was going on in their life during the good times and the good days. And then ultimately pray without ceasing for your friends. Pray for those who are, who are hurting. They need the grace of God. They need strength to continue. They need wisdom to know how to go on and proceed. And then communicate your support through acts of love. If you know they have a financial need, give to that. If you know that they don't know how to cook and they just need some food, and you know, like a like a single pastor who's had a wife who's cooked for him all along, fix some food for him. I'm glad his people were doing that and they were providing meals for them. Provide transportation for people to and from funerals, people that they know who uh, who need to, who want to come in, and maybe they've gone into an airport and they just need somebody to help them. And just ultimately, do not stay silent. Don't just sit there and stare at them. Ultimately, talk to this person carefully and graciously speak to them and say, I don't understand everything that you're going through, but you need to know that I love you and that I'm praying for you. Those are appropriate words at any time during a times of grief for someone like this. Again, Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward, those, toward outsiders. Making the most of the opportunity, and grieving people uh, are an opportunity for ministry. And let your speech be always with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. We need to be gracious and loving. Unfortunately, not everyone always is. Sometimes people can be obnoxious. Sometimes people can be out of line. Sometimes people don't know when to be quiet. Sometimes people don't know how they should act. And in our next step in the lesson, we're going to look at Jesus dealing with some self-centered disciples. They had gotten out of line. And uh, they were not quite with the program. And uh, Jesus needed to kind of bring them back into focus as to what was really important. And uh, he did that with grace and truth. Now, if you go back to John chapter 11, you'll remember that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And because of that, many people came to know Jesus and came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That, they, that these Jewish people have been looking for for thousands of years. And not everybody liked that. The Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests got together and they had a meeting and they decided that they did not want this to happen. Uh, Jesus' followers grew, but that wasn't the only thing that grew. Uh, the anger and the bitterness and the jealousy of these religious leaders also grew. Jesus was stealing their glory. He was exposing uh, the emptiness of their religious system. He had to be stopped, and that's what they were beginning to plan. Not even the knowledge of Lazarus's resurrection could convince these hard-hearted Pharisees, scribes, and priests that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Look in your Bible to John chapter 11, if you have it, just for a minute, the end of John chapter 11, and read along with me as I read verses 47 to 53. It says there that the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. 
If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and, and the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account what is expedient for you, that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Verse 53 is kind of a key. From that day on, they planned together to kill him. And then if you read on down in John chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, it says the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. Jesus had raised him from the dead, and they wanted to make sure he went back to that grave. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Now, the hardness of the hearts of these religious leaders is not surprising. They had a lot to lose. They either needed to repent and follow Jesus wholeheartedly or fight against him, and they chose to fight against him. They had long been attempting to discredit Jesus. We know about what he did there, with the, what they did with the, with the woman caught in adultery and how they tried to trap him there. That wasn't the only time. They were constantly going after Jesus, constantly trying to find flaws in his message, trying to do what they could to discredit him and to turn people against him. And Jesus wasn't really surprised by that. He knew that was going to come. And uh, he was aware that the Jewish leaders uh, had plans against him. Uh, and he knew that ultimately the cross was part of God's plan, part of the plan to provide for our salvation. And so that didn't bother him so much. He was aware of it. But I think he was a little bit taken aback, though he was God. I know not, we, we talk about being taken aback, but I would have been taken aback. Uh, by his friends who who didn't quite understand what was going on and, and didn't really uh, know how to treat Jesus during this time as he prepared for the time of the cross. In John chapter 13, verse 1, back in our text, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, he knew this was going to come, that he would depart out of this world into the unto the Father. He knew this was coming, and, and he began then to prepare his disciples for this. Now, I was reading the other day in my own reading in the Gospel of Mark. And, and in the Gospel of Mark, we have a lot of uh, more discussion that took place between Jesus and how he spoke to the disciples and was really teaching them and prophesying to them as he walked the streets of Israel uh, and Judah, uh, and the land of Galilee, and he was telling them constantly, I'm, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to scourge me, and they're going to put me to death, and then the third day I'm going to rise again. And the disciples just didn't quite get it. Um, imagine what it would be like for you to have a friend, or a couple of friends gathered around, and you've, you've called them to your side. You've been to the doctor, the doctor has given you a diagnosis that you have terminal cancer. And you have maybe several months to live. And you tell this news to your friends. And your friend's response is, Wow, you're going to die? Can I have your stuff? How heartless, how cruel, how mean that was. I have to admit, there was a time one of my friends was, was going skydiving. And uh, we were on the island of Guam. And and he was my pastor, and we knew each other very well. And, 
and uh, he had a telephone up in the airplane and I was down on the ground in his car and I asked him if I could have his car if he didn't make it during the skydiving incident. We were clowning around, but the, ferret, but the, but the disciples really were just being thoughtless, com- absolutely thoughtless as they responded to Jesus. In John chapter 13, verse 1, knowing that his hour had come that he would depart out of the world of the Father, having loved his own to the, in the, the, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus loved these disciples, but they didn't always express their love to him. Uh, they were sometimes pretty clueless and maybe even a little cruel. Look in your Bibles at Mark chapter 8 and 9, and we'll take it maybe into 10, and we'll, we'll look at some of these conversations that went on between Jesus and the disciples before he washed their feet in John chapter 13. Um, I don't know that I want to wash the feet of people who treated me like this, but Jesus did. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus spoke plainly to the disciples, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Even Peter had his mind in the wrong place. He wasn't really listening and catching what Jesus was saying. Peter's rebuke was not the only time the disciples demonstrated this cluelessness and this callousness about the approaching cross and the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, Their response proves they were not listening and that they were following with their own agenda in mind. I think sometimes people go to church for their own agenda. We need to make sure we're going for the Lord's agenda. Mark chapter 9 tells us another incident. Mark chapter 9 and verse 31, he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise again on the third day, or rise, rise three days later. But they did not understand his statement, and they were afraid to ask him. I don't know how they couldn't have understood. He was very plain about it. Verse 33 says, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Here Jesus is talking about dying, and all they're trying to decide is who's the greatest. Mark chapter 10, again, he took the disciples in verse 32 and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. In verse 35, the next verse, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit on your right hand and on your left in your glory. They may have well have said, Uh, Jesus, we know you're going to die and all that, but can we have your stuff? That's pretty much the attitude and the spirit that they had. How awful, how calloused, how heartless. They had a kingdom in mind. And Jesus was thinking of a cross. 
It's easy to see this kind of heartlessness in other people. It's easy for us to read about it and be appalled by it. I know many times I've just, I read my Bible and just shook my head and said, don't they get it? Mark chapter 10 verse 41 tells me that I wasn't the only one who was confused by the teach, by the questions of James and John. It says in Mark 10 41, hearing this, the ten, the other ten disciples, began to feel indignant with James and John. Now our response is very similar to people who treat the Lord Jesus like that, who treat us like that. They're thinking about themselves when we're talking about something serious and something potentially harmful and hurtful, and all they can think of themselves. You know, Jesus could have lashed out with harsh words. He could have rebuked them. He could have done all sorts of things. They just were not listening. They had their own agendas. They had their own desires in place. They wanted a crown, but he knew they weren't ready. And, and But Jesus did not stop trying to teach them. Oh, we need to be patient with people. We need to be gracious with people as Jesus was. He called them together in Mark chapter 10, verse 42. This is supernatural, the work of the Lord in our lives when we're able to do it like this. But Jesus, the Son of God, called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, for, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life a ransom for many. Now, the disciples needed to learn this lesson. And they weren't getting it when he was just teaching them. So then we go in John chapter 13 and we say they weren't listening to his words of truth. And so he had to demonstrate great grace to them by washing their feet. So let's go there in John chapter 13, back to our text. And, and this, is, this is following all these things that we've talked about, how, how heartlessly the disciples had treated Jesus. And what did Jesus do to show grace to these self-centered disciples? First of all, he moved toward them when we might have recoiled from them. Somebody mistreats you, that's the first thing we want to do. Just block them, stay away from them, ignore them, ban them. Don't be anywhere near those people. I've heard the, uh, the prayer, may the Lord bless and keep them far away from me. And uh, that's sometimes the way we think. But Jesus, during the supper, in John chapter 13, verse 2, during the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, and I like this verse, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, got up from his supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself, then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Dean Taylor says this, The greatest man who ever lived performed the work of a lowly slave. And he did it for inconsiderate, ambitious men who would repay him in just a few days 
by abandoning him, betraying him, denying him. What love and what grace Jesus had for these men. The disciples had repeatedly expressed thoughtlessness and carelessness and pride. And yet he stooped to the ground and he grabbed a towel and 24 grubby, dirty feet handled them and washed them. This is the very essence of grace. Undeserved favor. They didn't deserve this kind of kindness. They didn't deserve this kind of love. Jesus knew that two of those dirty feet belonged to Judas, who would betray him. He knew that two of those dirty feet belonged to Peter, who had rebuked him and would soon deny him three times before the cock crowed. James and John had just unabashedly tried to promote themselves politically in his kingdom, and yet he washes their dirty feet. They, too, would abandon Jesus. And then, so did the other eight disciples who were left. All turned their backs on him when he was arrested. And he knew that was going to happen, and he still washed their feet. Jesus' act of washing his disciples' feet really symbolized his whole life. He lowered himself from heaven to earth, from godhood to god-manhood, and served rebellious mankind by living among us and being crucified as the sacrifice for our sins. This is amazing grace. That's the attitude that's behind everything that Jesus did in his life. Philippians chapter 2 is a passage of scripture that we have looked at many times. And it talks about the attitude that Jesus had. Have this attitude in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of a man, of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, and favorite verses of mine, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ set the ultimate example of grace and truth. Here he is, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer. He's our Lord. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet, he demonstrated the truth that greatness is not found by pushing yourself on others. Greatness is found by humbling yourself and serving others. That is what Jesus did. One college that is was dear to me and is no longer with us used to have the slogan and they used to they used to issue a towel to every one of their graduates. And their slogan was the one with the dirtiest towel wins. And we need to learn from that example of working to minister to other people 
though they are unworthy of that ministry. We need to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 9, verse 35 says, Sitting down, he called the disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus treated these disciples with great grace. But then he hit them with truth. He made sure that they understood there was a lesson in this. This was not just a nice act. This was not just an act of kindness. This was a lesson for them to follow. How did Jesus speak truth to these self-centered disciples? He exhorted them to walk in his humble footsteps with those newly cleaned feet. In John chapter 13, verse um, 2 through 5, when you see what he did, he, it's not verses 2 through 5, it's down in verse 12. When he had washed his, their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now there are some churches and there are some, some denominations who actually have made this into another ordinance beyond baptism, beyond the Lord's Supper. They also wash people's feet in some ceremonial ritual. That's not what's going on here. Here Jesus is not saying this should be a third uh, uh, thing for the church to do. This, this is not a, a, a regular um, ordinance that should be observed. He was teaching this example of servant leadership. He says we should take on the menial or the lesser role when it's needed to be done. We shouldn't insist on our rights and our privileges. We should, not, we should meet others' needs more uh, than we are meeting even our own. We should be looking for a job no one else will do and cheerfully do it. Focusing on the results being achieved and not who will get the credit. As a pastor, I'm really careful that I don't get to the place where the only thing that I'm good at is preaching sermons. I hope that I'm able to help people in their time of need. I've actually cleaned a few toilets when I needed to. I know Pastor Kelly's had to do some stuff like that as well. It is not something that's always pleasant. But you know what? There, are, There's nothing in a church that I'm too good to do. And there's nothing in a church that you're too good to do. Whether it's sitting in the nursery, driving a vehicle, making sure the vehicle has gas in it. Whatever it is, the ministry that God has given to you is not beneath you. It is something that Christ has given to you. And we need to be looking for that. We need to humble ourselves and serve one another. Even when, you're, when they're like the disciples and are completely inconsiderate and unkind and unloving and self-centered. We still need to minister to others as Jesus did. In the notes, there's a little key illustration that I've given you is humility, a key quality to Christ-likeness. You need to understand that. We need to be humble like the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you respond when others overlook you or your deeds of service in the church? How do you react when people say thoughtless things to you? 
Uh, do you withdraw from others who have different opinions than you do and try to force your opinions on other people? Is there a ministry you wouldn't do if you had the qualifications to do it just because you don't want to do it? Who have you served recently? Who have you ministered to recently? Maybe you can't do anything for them physically, but you can make a phone call, send a text. You can pray for others. You can send words of encouragement. Let's bring this to an end here now. There's a statement that says the way up is down. An illustration in the notes there of a man walking across some arrows down to the target. What is the target? The target is being like the Lord Jesus Christ. The target is Christ-likeness. Let me remind you what it says in Philippians chapter 2, that we're to have the same attitude that Jesus had. Emptying himself, giving of himself, sacrificing of himself, walking away from glory down to minister to us in our time of need, even being willing to go to a cross if that is what is required to provide salvation for us. And what is the result of that? Verse 9 of Philippians chapter 2 says, For this reason, because of Jesus' humility and grace and willingness to do what he was called to do, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if you want to grow in grace and truth, you want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, find a ministry and get actively involved in it. Do not sit on the sidelines. God has not called us to be Super Bowl spectators. He called us to the field. And you and I need to be there. Find your purpose. Get involved. Humbly serve with no delusions of grandeur. Leave your crowns at Jesus' feet. Let him exalt you at the right time if that is his will and when it's his will in his divine plan. Strive to be like Jesus Christ. Remember, that's our goal. That's how we thrive as an individual and as a church. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13, to be like him, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What was he like? Full of grace and truth. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Are you like him? Will you serve like Jesus and find the ministry and the greatness that God has for you in that service? Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the beautiful example of the Lord Jesus Christ who was willing to grab smelly, dirty feet that had been walking the dusty roads of Israel, 24 feet that smelled, were ugly men feet, and he washed them to show humility to us. Lord, help us to be like Jesus, serving, bringing glory to him, honoring him with the way we live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.